So you're ready to look into God's Word this morning. Yeah, let's do that. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter 20, if you will. I sense a growing hunger in our church to know God, to know His Word. And um, towards that end, we're going to look at this parable today. You know, in our uh, small group this past week, um, we were discussing the message from last weekend that Pastor Brian presented on sanctifying grace. And uh, remember that video, that drama sketch in the video that uh, so many of us connected with, God chiseling away in our lives? And my small group leader, Todd, asked the question, so how has God been chiseling away in your life in recent days? And uh, so we went around our group there and shared, and I committed one of the cardinal sins of small group participation, which is when everybody else was sharing, I was thinking about what I was going to say when it got to me. So I've repented and confessed that to the Lord, and we're all good now. Anyway, it came to me, and I said, well, you know, I think what God's been doing in my life for the past couple of years is, is reshaping and reforming my view of him, of who he is, that he's not just a bigger, better version of me. He is so much more than that. And so God's been chiseling away at a false image of him that's been constructed in my mind. And one of the things I'm realizing is that my view of God affects everything about me, and so does yours. It affects what I focus on, what I think about. It affects my priorities. It affects how I think about my days. It affects how I think about my family, myself. It affects how I think about you and church and ministry. And as a pastor, it affects how I preach and what I speak on and and my ministry. It affects everything. And so God has been working in my mind, renewing my mind, I hope. And it's been both a wonderful thing and a scary thing. So I've been letting go of long-held images of, of God. And the message today may be part of that same process in your own mind. I hope and pray that it is. We're going to look at one of the most provocative parables that Jesus ever told. I'm titling the message, Scandalous Grace. And we're going to look at four things. We're going to first look at the proverb that Jesus tells, and then the parable, story that he tells. Then we'll examine the point of the parable. And then we're going to draw some principles from it about God. Let me set the context for you here. What has just happened setting this up is this. The rich young ruler had come to Jesus. You remember that story? And he had asked Jesus, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus measured this young man's life against the Ten Commandments. And the guy said, well, I keep all the Ten Commandments. I'm good there. What else you got? And Jesus basically went on to expose the fact that this guy had an idol in his heart, the idol of money, that he was not willing to topple, not willing to let go of. And the guy ends up walking away, basically, from Jesus. And Jesus at that point says, wow, how hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. It's only possible with God. Well, Peter and the disciples are standing there, and they've been watching this whole scene. They watch the guy walk away. And Peter blurts out and says, you know, well, we've given up everything, Jesus, to follow you. What will there be for us? And uh, 
Jesus goes on to answer him, and in so doing, he tells this story, this parable. There's a study guide in your bulletin. If you want to pull that out, you can follow along here. He begins, it's actually verse uh, chapter 19 and verse 30, the last verse of the previous chapter is part of this section. He begins by speaking a proverb. It says this, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Jesus actually quotes that little saying twice in this context. First, here, to kind of set up this parable he's going to tell, and then he brackets it at the end by quoting it again. We're not exactly sure where this little saying originated. We're not sure if Jesus coined it himself or if he latched onto it, picked up a familiar saying that had been around for a while. But in any event, he used it quite a bit, especially when he detected in his disciples some self-promotion, this me-first attitude that would crop up every now and again. And he would remind them, hey, I just want to let you know that the last are going to be first and the first are going to be last. So what does the proverb mean? Well, it could mean several different things. We should probably just let Jesus explain exactly what he meant through the parable that follows. And of course, you might recall that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus was a master storyteller, wasn't he? He was forever telling stories that had a spiritual point to them. But this parable, I'd like us to call it the parable of the gracious landowner, is certainly one of the most as I said, provocative and intriguing stories he ever told. It begins, it's recorded in verse 1 of chapter 20 of Matthew. Here's how he starts. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. So Jesus is creating a scenario from the world of business, agribusiness really. But his point is not to tell us how to run our businesses. He's illustrating how things operate in the kingdom. That's what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And of course, the kingdom is that realm of existence where God is the king and he rules and reigns and he governs by his own principles. It's the realm of salvation. It's what we as followers of Jesus live in and hope to see fully come on our planet. Thy kingdom come, we pray. So he's going to, Jesus is going to show through this story how God's kingdom has its very own unique operating system that's completely different from the operating system of the world. And so he paints a picture. He says there's a certain landowner whose estate includes a, a vineyard, and he decides that he needs to hire some extra workers. So this would have been a scenario very familiar to his disciples, to his listeners there. The guy needs to hire more workers. Perhaps, we're not sure, but perhaps it's harvest time and the crop needs to be gathered in before the rainy season starts. So he needs to increase his labor force by hiring some temporary help. So he heads out in the morning to hire some men and he finds some guys milling around in the marketplace waiting to be hired. Now these men, these workers, would have been common day laborers, unskilled workers very likely near the bottom of the food chain in that culture. And um, these guys would survive by hiring themselves out every day on a daily basis to whoever would hire them, pretty much eking out kind of a meager subsistence-level life. It was customary for workers like this to gather in the marketplace of the local village early in the morning. 
See, the Jewish workday went from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., six days a week. Of course, these guys were eager to be hired first, to start work early, to get a whole day's work in so they could earn a full day's wage. So they probably showed up prior to 6 a.m. there in the marketplace, hoping against hope that someone would come along and hire them. In that sense, these workers were totally dependent on others every day for their daily sustenance. So the landowner goes to the marketplace early in the morning. He sees some guys. He hires them. Those men probably felt fortunate in comparison with the others who were left standing in the marketplace because they knew that that they would be able to earn a full day's wage. Verse 2, he, the landowner, agreed to pay them a denarius for a day. And he sent them into his vineyard to work. How would you like to earn a denarius? (laughs) Well, a denarius for 12 hours of work was actually a very generous wage for an unskilled laborer. A denarius was a daily wage for a Roman soldier in that day. So these guys would have felt that they had good fortune (laughs) to be able to earn a denarius. This was a good day for them. This was good news. Now look at what happens next. Verse 3. About the third hour, that's 9 a.m. in the morning now, he, the landowner, went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And he went out again about the sixth hour, that's noon. And again at the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon. And he did the same thing. And at about the 11th hour, what time would that have been? About five o'clock. Just one hour left in the workday. At the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one's hired us, they answered. And he said to them, well, you also go and work in my vineyard. So this landowner, for some unknown reason, goes back into the marketplace at regular intervals throughout the day, and he hires these additional groups of laborers, of workers. So you got the 6 a.m. guys who were hired first, then the 9 a.m. crew, and then more at noon, and then still another group was hired at 3 in the afternoon. No statement is made to those groups about the rate of pay that they would receive, only that they would be paid what was right. And they were really in no position to negotiate their pay anyway. They would have been increasingly desperate as the day wore on without being hired, so they would be in the position of needing really to take anything that they were offered. And so that's what they did. And then interestingly, at the 11th hour at 5 o'clock, the owner comes back to the marketplace one last time and he finds some guys still standing around there, hanging out, hoping to be hired. Now we can read a kind of scolding tone into what he says to them. Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? But I'm convinced that he was not scolding them for being idle. After all, they were there. You know, they weren't at home watching Sports Center, kicking back. They were there in the marketplace, waiting to be hired still. And their answer seems genuine. We're, we're here because no one's hired us. You can imagine. These guys have been waiting all day, wanting to be hired, and it must have gotten progressively discouraging for them as different groups of men got hired throughout the day, and there they were, left behind. Maybe these were the older men who maybe didn't appear fit enough to work a full day. Maybe they appeared 
sick or weak or disabled. We don't know. We're not told why they didn't get chosen. But in any event, the landowner hires them to go out in his, and work in his vineyard for just one hour before the whistle blows and they could clock out and end the workday. Verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. And that would have been customary for these kinds of workers. God had set it up this way in that economy that these kinds of day laborers, unskilled laborers, should be paid at the end of every day. And then here's where the story starts to get interesting says to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Does that sound familiar? Here's where the proverb and the parable begin to intersect. The last will be first and the first last. The owner tells the foreman, line them up in reverse order. Last ones hired get paid first. First ones hired are in the back of the line. Now, why does he do this? I've thought about this a lot. I've read through this parable probably 20 times studying for this message. The only reason I can see that he does it this way is because he wants the full-day workers, the guys who were hired at 6 in the morning, to see what the others get paid. There's a point here. He wants them to see how he's going to dole out the wages. If he had done it the usual way, The guys hired first would have gotten paid first and they would have gotten their denarius and taken off for home and they wouldn't have seen what he had in mind for the others. But because he pays them in reverse order, the all-day workers see the whole thing. So verse 9, the workers who were hired about the 11th hour, that's the 5 o'clock workers, they're there in the front of the line, they came and they each received a denarius. Surprise, surprise. The foreman walks over to the guys hired at 5 o'clock. They'd only worked for an hour, and he gives them a denarius, a full day's wage. How do you think they responded? They're looking down at that shiny coin in their hand, and I'm sure at first, you know, their eyes got as big as saucers as they look at that. That wasn't what they expected. They were probably a little flabbergasted and astonished at first, but probably... They broke into big grins, don't you imagine? Look at each other and go, this is a good day. (laughs) There was probably some chest bumping going on and some high-fiving, and it's like, love this, love this, (laughs) woo-hoo. No doubt they thanked the owner profusely and his wife and his mother and anybody else who happened to be standing around. This is awesome. They're thinking, you know, honey, Going out for steak tonight. (laughs) I think we can also infer that they were probably not the only ones rejoicing. Think about the men at the back of the line, the guys who started work at 6 a.m. and had worked 12 hours all day. They see what the 5 o'clock workers get, a denarius, and can't you imagine that they were also jumping up and down, maybe on the inside, because they're thinking, whoa, Those guys are getting a denarius an hour. We work 12 hours, and so their mental calculators are going, and they're figuring it all out, and they're they're thinking, this is going to be awesome. We're going to get paid this monstrous wage. We're not going to have to work for two weeks. Well, the foreman continues to call each man up, 
It doesn't say specifically. I think we can assume that the others hired throughout the day also received that same wage of a denarius. So we see that the landowner was being progressively generous with each group of workers who was hired throughout the day. Each group was receiving not what they had earned on an hourly basis, but rather what they needed to provide for their families. Finally, the foreman calls up the all-day workers. They're the only ones left. Everybody else has gone home. And, of course, they've been watching what the others received, and they've been making their mental calculations. Verse 10, so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. Whoa. How would you have responded? (laughs) Well, here's how they responded. Verse 11, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. You're not being fair. How many of you would have responded similarly? Come on, be honest. You're looking over there at what those guys got and what you got. Wait just a second, Mr. Landowner. What about equal pay for equal work? Don't you understand? Don't you operate by that axiom? Everybody else does. How come we get the same as those guys? We did way more work than them, and we bore the heat of the day. Literally, the word in the original is burner. (laughs) You know what they're saying? It was a scorcher today. And we sweated and toiled all day long picking your grapes in your vineyard and stacking them in those crates over there. If you're going to pay those other fellows a denarius, those guys who didn't even get here till after it cooled down, most of the work was already done, then we deserve more than those guys. You're not being fair. They were upset and angry that the landowner was conducting his business on a completely different operating system than anything they had ever experienced. And, of course, they'd gotten their hopes up, their expectations up, as they'd seen each group of workers get their denarius. But in the space of just a few minutes, their rejoicing turned into grumbling. Now look at how the owner responds. This is so intriguing to me. Verse 13. But he, the landowner, answered one of them, friend, it's interesting, in the original, it's more like fella, or we might say dude, (laughs) dude, I'm not being unfair to you. You might want to underline that phrase. I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? Or are you envious? Literally, is your eye evil? Because I'm generous to those guys. Notice what he's saying. Hey, guys, I'm not being unfair to you. Back at 530 this morning, we agreed. We have a a contract. 
We agreed on that before you ever started working, and that's exactly what I'm paying you. There's no breach of contract here. Take your pay and go. <laughs> the implication is they're standing there with their coin trying to decide, do we, do we press our point here? Do we keep arguing this? Do we call in the union bosses? What do we do? And he says, take your pay. Go home to your families. I've met my obligation to you. I want to give the one-hour worker the same as I gave you. Can't I do that? Don't I have a right to dispense my resources however I want? Or are you jealous of those guys? Are you envious because of how I'm treating them? I can almost hear him saying under his breath, what happened, guys? You were so happy early this morning when we agreed that you would receive a denarius. You were thrilled about that. And now I'm the bad guy in your eyes because I extended grace. I chose to bless some other guys. And then Jesus punctuates the story by repeating that proverb once more. So the last will be first and the first will be last. Only now it's a little clearer what he meant by that proverb. Obviously, in the story, the guys who were hired last were paid first, and the guys who were hired first at the beginning of the day were paid last. So Jesus is apparently stating that in his kingdom, the order of things won't be what we're used to, won't be what is commonly accepted. There's going to be a reversal that's going to surprise and shock people. But I think there's something else here, too. I believe that this was a kind of riddle as well as a parable, and the the parable solves the riddle. If you think about it in terms of a race, if someone said that in a race the first are going to be last and the last are going to be first, what could that mean? What scenario would result in all the losers being winners and all the winners being losers? Couldn't it mean that the race ended up in a dead heat, that everybody crossed the finish line at the exact same time? time, coming in both first and last. I studied this in depth, and the Bible teachers that I trust believe that that was indeed the point that Jesus wanted to make here. By giving every worker the exact same wage, no matter how long they work, the landowner was making everyone equal. It was a dead heat. The first were last, and the last were first. So what's the point of this parable? What's the spiritual point? What's the kingdom truth that Jesus wanted to communicate? First, we need to understand um, what these characters represented. It's obvious in this parable that the landowner represents who? God, absolutely. All Bible scholars are agreed on that. The vineyard is his kingdom. The workers represents those that he selects to serve in his kingdom. The workday represents the duration of our service to the king, our lifetime. The end of the day is the beginning of eternity, and the wage represents eternal life. So here's the point. All who come into Christ's kingdom will receive the same full and equal reward, regardless of how long they served Christ, Because the reward is not given based on the performance of the servants, but on the gracious generosity of the king. You get this? Whether someone is saved, comes to faith in Jesus Christ at age 7 or age 70, 
They will inherit the same eternal life, the same forgiveness of sins, the same eternal home in in heaven. Whether they were saved at a very young age and were able to serve Christ their whole life, or whether they were saved at age 77, just prior to slipping onto the other side, all true believers inherit the same eternal life, the same heaven. Whether you're Peter, came to Christ at an early age, perhaps even as young as a teenager, served Jesus faithfully your whole life, ended up being crucified upside down as a martyr for the faith, or whether you're the thief on the cross at the 11th hour, 11.58, heard the gospel call, put his faith in Jesus Christ, and slipped into the kingdom just prior to slipping into eternity. Both Peter and the thief on the cross inherit the same heaven, the same forgiveness, the same eternal joy with Jesus in the presence of God. That's what Jesus is teaching here. It's a wonderful, glorious, eternal truth. Equal for all. We'll all be in the Father's house forever. Now, let me draw your attention to some principles from this story that I think underscore the main point of the story, which is the gracious heart of the landowner. We're going to talk about God these next few moments. And these are the kinds of thoughts that the Spirit of God's been molding and forming and shaping in my head over the past couple of years as I've had to shed some of my previous notions of what God is like and who he is. Notice these principles. Number one, God initiates salvation sovereignly. Just like that landowner went into the marketplace at 5.30 in the morning and said, I want you, 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 and you. Come with me. So the God of creation has sovereignly chosen people to serve him in his kingdom. It's an amazing truth. It's what Jesus said in John 15. You have not chosen me, but what? I've chosen you. I picked you. Chosen by God. God picks whomever he wants. We saw this back in week one of this series when we studied from the word how God in his sovereign grace initiates salvation from his position as the sovereign ruler of the universe. And number two, it's God who establishes the terms. Just like the landowner went into the marketplace and said, I'll pay you guys a denarius. I'll pay you whatever's right. So God sets the terms for entrance into his kingdom. And what are the terms? Repent and believe the gospel. Those are the terms. You want to be in the kingdom of God? You must repent of your sins and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all over the Bible. God sets the terms. Number three, I love this. God is continually calling people into his kingdom. In the story, the owner keeps going back to the marketplace all day long, up until the 11th hour. This tells us that God is continually calling people into his kingdom. Some are called early in life. Some are called later in life. Yes, God sovereignly chose people by his grace, but he's calling people to salvation all the way up to the 11th hour. From our perspective, we can't know whom God has chosen before they respond to his gospel call, only afterwards. So don't give up on anybody. 
Don't give up on anybody by saying, well, I'm, I'm looking at their life right now and it sure doesn't look like God has chosen them, so I'm going to write them off. No, don't do that. If someone had taken a snapshot of that thief who was hanging on the cross earlier in his life when he was just steeped in sin and self and rebellion, they would have said, no chance for him. God's obviously not calling him. No. I'm telling you, there's hope for that uncle, that aunt or aunt, depending on where you're from. That grandmother, that grandfather, that parent, that maybe right now, if you took a snapshot of their life right now, maybe there's no spiritual evidence of salvation at all. Do not write them off. Do not give up. God's going back again and again and again and again and calling people. Calling them. Some will be saved at 11.58. Like the thief on the cross. That's why that story's in the Bible, I'm convinced. Keep praying. Keep sharing the word. Keep living out the gospel. God is continually going back into our marketplace, calling people. And number four, God redeems those who are willing. This is the other side of his sovereign choice, isn't it? The willingness of those who were selected. They were there. They were available. They were willing to work. They knew they were dependent. They knew they had nothing. They knew they had no resources to offer. These were not the rich, the self-sufficient. They were the poor and the meek and those without any resources who would take whatever the master offered them. Listen, no one who is willing to repent and believe will be turned away. Didn't Jesus say that many times? All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. All who are willing to repent and believe will be saved. Number five. You know, as I read this parable over and over again, I had the same lingering question. Didn't the landowner know how many workers it would take to harvest? I mean, couldn't he have calculated that and figured that out? I got so many acres here and the crop, and it takes, you know, a worker so long to do one acre. And couldn't he have calculated all that in advance and figured it out? Why did he have to keep going back again and again and again? Was he just bad at math? (laughs) And the answer that comes crashing into my mind is no. It's because he is compassionate. God is particularly compassionate to those who have no resources. I'm not even convinced he really needed the five o'clock workers, but he went back into the marketplace. Guys have been there all day, and their hopes have been sinking, 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 as each group was hired, and they were left. And the gracious landowner comes back and says, I want you. I want you. There's something about the heart of God that is particularly softened and compassionate towards those who have no resources, who have nothing and know it. Aren't you glad of that? He calls them and hires them not based on his need, but on their need. Number six, all who were chosen worked in the vineyard. Yeah. Some worked more, some worked less. But all of them worked. No one was sitting on the sidelines. And oh, how I'd like to take 45 minutes and talk about the work of the kingdom. But I can't. Another sermon for another day. Number seven. Here's where I want to park for a few moments. Listen, God gives all of us, everyone, more than we deserve. Don't miss this. 
This point is essential for understanding and appreciating the grace of God. You know what? The guys who worked 12 hours all day didn't really deserve a denarius. It was a generous wage. The rest didn't deserve it either. All of them were really in the same boat, just like us. Listen. If we all got what we deserved, what we've earned, every single one of us would have woken up in hell today. Do you get this? This is absolutely critical for understanding grace. This is like a new set of glasses for some people, seeing life through a whole new set of lenses. If we all got what we deserved, we would have all woken up in hell because of our sinful, selfish rebellion against a righteous and holy God. And you know what? God would be perfectly righteous and just to throw all of us into hell. And it would be fair. There should be no whining, no complaining. It's just and it's right for him to do that. Do we understand this? Just like in the parable, God can say to anybody of any time, any age, any era, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. God doesn't owe anybody anything. God has never wronged anyone such that he should feel some need to repay them with goodness. No, no, no. Romans 11 says that scenario does not exist. God doesn't owe anybody anything. He's never wronged anybody. we owe him he's our creator our maker we owe him a lifetime of faithful service and allegiance do we not that's just our responsibility our duty listen if you keep all the traffic laws do they give you cash rewards for that no that's just what you're supposed to do right we are indebted to our creator we owe him a lifetime of service and none of us has fulfilled that duty and obligation completely. That's why everything that he gives us is grace. You know, some people say, well, I'm, I'm having a bad day or a, a bad week or a bad month or a bad year. And okay, maybe you are. You know, maybe finances are crumbling, relationships coming apart. You know, stuff's going on. You say, I'm having a bad day. And I want to say, no, no, no. In the grand scheme of things, that's not really a bad day. A bad day would be a day in hell. That's a bad day. Like the worst day you can even possibly imagine. If you woke up today with breath in your lungs and your heart beating, that's a good day. (laughs) And some of you, you've got, well, all of us, places to live, roofs over our head, a bed to sleep in, cars that work most of the time, clothes, some degree of health. That's a good day. But we live in an entitlement culture. And there are whole industries geared towards making us discontent with what we have and thinking we deserve more. We're entitled to this. Do you ever fight this with your kids? Oh, I should be getting one of those new iPads because everybody else has one or whatever, you know. Well, the new thing's an iPad. I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled to that. Oh, really? (laughs) 
in the kingdom of God, in his economy, we're all entitled to pay for our own sins in hell forever. So I don't know about you, but I wake up every morning saying, good morning, Lord. Thank you for another day to be alive. I didn't wake up in hell today. Praise God. That's what I deserve. And I'm living. I'm breathing. The heat's on in my house. That's a good day. Your worst day on this planet is a beautiful day compared to a day in hell. And that's the perspective we've got to have. If we don't have that perspective, if we don't develop that mindset, we will not appreciate grace. And you'll come and we'll sing Amazing Grace and you'll go, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Save your wretch, whatever. But if you get it, <laughs> you'll go, Amazing Grace. Sweet. <laughs> Sounds sweet. We're all getting way way more than we deserve. The littlest, simplest pleasure in your life is grace. Anything other than an eternity in hell is grace. And some of you say, well, but, but, you know, I've earned all this good stuff. I've worked hard. I've served Jesus. Listen, he purchased every single blessing for you by his death on the cross. He doesn't owe you anything or me. Well, number eight. Oh, I should say this, because some of you, your minds are churning and you're thinking, well, but didn't you teach us a few months ago about rewards and crowns and things that we, you know, earn for our faithful service to God? And I want to say, yes, 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 a thousand times yes. Jesus taught that. Paul taught that. The apostles taught that there are rewards in heaven. But that's not what's in view in this passage. He's talking here about eternal life. That's the whole context. That's what the rich young ruler had asked about. How do I get eternal life? That's what he just told Peter. You're going to inherit eternal life. That's what he's talking about. Now, number eight. (laughs) There is no place for jealousy in the kingdom of God. It's out of place. The owner concluded his conversation with a very convicting question about the perspective of these 6 a.m. workers who'd worked all day. Is your eye evil because I am generous? Translated, are you so self-focused that you can't rejoice in my graciousness to those other guys? When our eye is evil, God's grace to others can appear offensive and even scandalous. Why is it that we're forever looking over there? What do they got? What are they getting over there? Hey, what about them? How come? What? I think God is saying to us, I'll work in that person's life. Let me be their king, their ruler, and I'll work in your life. You start comparing your life with others and who's getting more blessings and your, your grace mindset is going to change and it's going to shrink if that's your focus. What if, listen, what if God in his sovereign grace wants to load someone else up with blessings in this life? Can you deal with that? Can you rejoice in that? Doesn't God have the right to do that? 
You know, sometimes we look at others and we see them receiving more good things than we're receiving and we get all bent out of shape and we say, well, that's, you know, that's scandalous. It's not right. It's not fair. You want scandalous? Scandalous is this, that the owner of everything would choose to extend any grace to any sinners at all. And to do that at the cost of his own son's life, that's scandalous. That's scandalous grace. You know what? You're a recipient of it. And I'm a recipient of God's scandalous, offensive grace. Blessings purchased for us with blood, the blood of his own son hanging on that cross. You don't have to spend eternity in hell. You get life on this earth, a measure of blessings in this life, eternal life, forgiveness, a home in heaven, redemption, the most wonderful joy you will ever experience there. It's all grace. It's all grace. For we who are recipients of God's scandalous grace through embracing the gospel, I agree with what a guy named Jerry Bridges wrote in a book called Transforming Grace. I highly recommend it. He wrote this. Living by grace instead of by works means that you are free from the performance treadmill means that God has already given you an A when you deserved an F. He's already given you a full day's pay, even though you may have worked only one hour. It means you don't have to perform certain spiritual disciplines to earn God's approval. Jesus Christ has already earned God's approval for you. You are loved and accepted by God through the merit of Jesus, and you are blessed by God through the merit of Jesus. You are graced. And if you want to fill in that little blank at the end of your outline, you are graced through Jesus Christ. This is part of what God's been doing in my own heart, my own life, my own mind over the past couple of years. Expanding my mind to see him as the immensely, immeasurably gracious ruler king that he is. Unbelievable. And having been recipients of that kind of scandalous grace, shouldn't we be extending that to others? Should we not? Instead of holding them, you know? Well, let's pray together. Our Father... Many people in this room work at an office or in a plant or factory or somewhere, and they work with, you know, there's a gal in the next cubicle, or there's a guy across the line, and they think they're getting a raw deal in life. They think everything's against them, and they're whining and complaining about this and that, not even comprehending that they, too, are recipients of your grace because they're not in hell today (laughs) as they deserve, as we all deserve. 
I think for us here at New Life, we need a new set of lenses through which to view you, who you really are. Thank you for showing me that you're not just a bigger, better version of me. You are, as the theologians would say, holy other. And your ways are not my ways, and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Lord, there are some in our midst today who are on the performance treadmill. They live by the axiom, work harder, earn more, owed more. And Lord, they need to step off that thing and step into your grace. Would you give them the grace to do that? To get off the performance treadmill and to learn to stand and live and walk in your grace? Lord, we know we're here, as you say in Ephesians, for the praise of your glorious grace. May we be a congregation that brings exceeding praise to you, Jesus, for your grace in our lives. That's why we're here. Open our eyes to this, Lord, I pray in your precious name.